This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys, today I sat down and talked to Dr. Michael Nuckala. Mike is a psychologist. He is a counselor. Uh, he taught for many years at Harvard. He is currently teaching at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in their psychology department and counseling. But just had a blast chat, chatting with Mike about psychology, how he got into it, that whole world. Um, I got to ask him a lot of questions that I just find myself asking on a daily basis. So it's fun to be able to hear from somebody with a true technical background. How do these things apply to life in general and the way I view things? Um, so enjoy the episode. I really appreciated speaking with Mike. Thank you guys. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. Mike, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, Logan. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, Sometimes when I do these, I have a hundred questions and I, and I feel like that right now. So I'll, we'll just let it happen, but let's, okay. instead of diving into a hundred questions, let me take you back to the beginning. Where did psychology begin for you? Oh, that's a good question. People ask me that all the time, Yeah, but probably anyone who goes into the psychology field begins at home. Okay. You know, it's things you learn growing up that make you interested in people. You know, why we behave the way we do, what makes us tick. Yeah. Why we act so crazy sometimes, you know, how people are so different. Yeah. All those sorts of things. So I would say the earliest beginnings really are, you know, with family and friends growing up up here in the Hancock area. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you remember was I've always been very interested in people. So I'm even just drawing parallels between myself and you. Do you remember at what age you realized you were interested in people or even that that is different than some other people? Well, I remember at a very early age thinking that it's amazing parents my parents and and the other adults didn't really understand things in the way i thought they should have i yeah. was probably about eight or ten years old and i know my own kids think that way about me at times yeah. or they did when they were that age <laughs> so early on i felt that young people really had insights that others didn't understand huh. and that there was some kind of disconnection between what a kid knew and what parents thought they knew or, huh. or what adults thought they knew and I, I think that's something that um, is common, that, that children feel misunderstood or poorly understood. So that's my first recollection of when I began thinking psychologically. Okay. Uh, and then, but was it a while after that till you eventually found out like this is a field you can get into and this is an area of research and practice? A long time after that. Yeah. I never thought about psychology as a student in high school, for example. Okay. I never, I don't think I ever even heard of it. Well, maybe I did, but I, I don't recall hearing about it. So I went to college to be a, a journalist. I wanted to be a writer, really, a fiction writer huh. and, and poet. And that's what I went to college for and um, pursued that track for a while, for a couple of years. And at some point, um, began taking psychology courses as electives. 
psychology and philosophy and religion courses. They all kind of served a similar purpose in uh, trying to understand humans better on some level. And then at some point, realized I was probably more interested in writing about people and their behavior hmm. than I was writing fiction. But that went back and forth for a long time. Okay. Uh, so you went to school for the writing and you pursued that for a while. What did that look like? What was that experience? It was a great experience. Um, you know, I really, I was deeply into fiction. Like many um, boys growing up in the UP, I was exposed to Hemingway's writing early on and that inspired me. Just very basic, uh, accessible writing for a high school student. Though it has many levels that go beyond what you think you understand at that time. Mm -hmm. So I started taking creative writing courses in college and poetry courses. Probably took all of them that I could. Um, I think a turning point for me was in one class, a poetry class I was in, there was a young woman uh, student who was so much better than everyone else. I thought, Mm. I'm not sure I'd ever be that good. And I think unintentionally, I started moving more into other fields of study at that point and really landed in psychology. So I ultimately got two degrees from Michigan State, one in communications with a focus on writing and interpersonal communications and one in psychology. I stayed a fifth year and got a second degree um, because by that point, I knew that was the field I was going to pursue. Okay. In your undergrad, you stayed that fifth year? I stayed a fifth year in undergrad and got a second degree. Okay. I got you. Um, but then after you had that, so the psychology degree was in undergrad, but then you went into writing after that. No, not okay. exactly. I went, uh, I went on for a master's degree at the university of Minnesota Duluth. Okay. And that was just by happenstance. Life took me to Duluth for various reasons. And I blended my interest in journalism and youth development by being a circulation manager for a little while in Duluth as a, as a first job out of college. So that in, included uh, training paper boys and girls to deliver newspapers. And that was, that was my first exposure to working with kids okay. and motivating kids to get their job done. And believe it or not, it was an interesting experience. You know, hmm. On the surface, it sounds like you're telling kids to deliver their papers. Right. But on a deeper level, you're working with young kids, in, in, especially in Duluth. They're dealing with the elements of the, you know, the cold winter and uh, having to get the newspapers delivered early in the morning or in the afternoon, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Okay. Um, then the, uh, but eventually now you're a practicing. Well, I'm a practicing psychologist, but I'm primarily a professor who trains counselors and therapists and writes about that process and, you know, writes about um, different approaches to youth development, including the one that I've developed, which I call possibility development. Okay. That focuses on how people think about possibilities in their lives and how they go about pursuing them. Okay. I got you. Um, And you're helping other people through that program as well. But how did that interest in the kid development and child development come to be? Well, it's it's a little bit of a long story. I I got a master's degree from uh, University of Minnesota Duluth or UMD in counseling. And then went on um, to become an addiction counselor after that in New York City. Life took me to New York after Duluth. And I, it was, this was during the crack epidemic, actually. And uh, I was a, you know, a white guy from the Midwest counseling primarily black young adults in Brooklyn in a, a neighborhood called Bedford-Stuyvesant, which at that time was, a, was in really rough condition, you know, very poor, um, lots of community violence. And uh, I started working with uh, young black men and women 
around alcoholism problems and uh, other forms of addiction and fell in love with that work, hmm. um, especially these young people whose lives were turned upside down by it. And then, you know, at the beginning, you asked me how I got into this initially. And of, like most families, I had families that struggled with addiction mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, alcoholism and other, primarily alcoholism. Um, so I identified with these young people, but at some point determined that I wanted to intervene earlier to try to prevent addiction from happening, hmm. addiction and related problems. So I went on and um, applied for my doctorate in counseling psychology and had the good fortune of getting accepted to a number of places, including Harvard University. So I got my doctorate in counseling from Harvard in the early 90s and then went on to teach there for 16 years and really launched my career and, and even this, this field of possibility development. Okay. What did you teach at Harvard then? I mean, in your field, but did you have core focuses there? Yeah. At Harvard, I taught courses on uh, adolescent development, you know, how young people develop. Um, and, uh, different forms of counseling, including group counseling and the individual approaches to counseling like psychodynamic or cognitive behavioral therapy. So really I taught the whole range of counseling approaches and, um, but primarily focused on the adolescent and young adult years that I helped start a program at Harvard called risk and prevention, which focused on understanding risk factors for addiction and other problems and uh, developing preventive interventions and studying their effectiveness. Hmm. Okay. When I was young, each of these little nuggets you're telling me, I think of 10 questions on each one. So I'm going to try to rein it in and we'll just try to tackle them as we go. But when I was young, I remember being, I don't remember what age, 10, 12 and feeling misunderstood. Right. Just like you said, right? Right. Uh, Yeah. And I remember vowing at that moment that when I'm old, whatever that looks like. I mean, I remember what I felt like at 12 years old. Yeah. I remember that that 12 year old is way more advanced than what an adult thinks they are. Right. 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 They're, they're basically an adult, but just, they're not fully processed yet or whatever it might be. I mean, their brain's working. Does that make sense? They're way further ahead than what you as an adult might look at or how I perceived adults looked at kids. It makes a lot of sense. The way, the way uh, we typically think of the 10 to 12 year old, for example, is that, they have a lot of, uh, their, their mental development has come a long way, or what mm-hmm. people would call their cognitive development, how they think. But a 10 to 12-year-old only has so much experience in the world. Mm-hmm. So we, in some of the writing I do, I talk about that as um, data collection, that young people are data collectors. They're, we talk about adolescent experimentation. And that's actually an interesting word because um, you know, kids are experimenting with reality. Mm-hmm. If I do this, what's likely to happen? If I do that, what's likely to happen? If I talk to this person in this way, what's likely to happen? These are all kind of life experiments. So in that, you know, 10 to 12 and early teenage range, there's a lot of experimentation of that type happening, which allows young people to figure out or try to figure out who they are and who they want to be as they move forward into the teenage years and beyond. Okay. Um, but to me, because that really resonated with me when you talked about being a young kid and yeah. always being interested in people. But I'm curious how, not even necessarily having a question about it, but just that's crazy that that is what, but maybe you would have been there either way, no matter what, but that can be kind of the founding of when you initially were into that and then maybe pushed you to help other kids be understood. Yeah, I, I think know. so. I think so. I had, you know, I had a, a very um, powerful and dominant and dominating father. Okay. So he... 
He was powerful in the sense of being a union organizer, an influencer of people. And, you know, we were afraid to cross the line with him. So that's probably a first key encounter for me. How do I deal with dad? Sure. You know, how do I not get crushed by this guy yeah. and, and win his support? Because I, I truly wanted that. And so I think a lot of my, um, a lot of my efforts toward helping kids advance is in helping them deal with their families sure. and figuring, you know, fig- and help their families deal with them because parents often grossly underestimate what their kids are thinking and, uh, you know, what they're experiencing. Yeah. Right. On a complexity level mm-hmm. that they under misunderstand that, but as well as the, sometimes you almost feel like you could remove or like they don't feel full emotions, but they do just as much as you or I, or if not even further, maybe right? even more intense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, emotional, emotional feeling is perhaps most intense in the, in the adolescent years, you huh. know, like from 10 to 12 through 18 to 19, we still feel intense emotions throughout the life cycle, of course, but during that period, because so many new things are happening um, and they're newer relative to how long you've been alive. You mm-hmm. know, once you're 25, 35, 45, the things you feel you've you've processed before, for the most part, not always. Mm-hmm. There can be new new challenges, even traumas that come up later in life that really instill deep feelings. But those teenage years tend to be I mean, dominated almost by intensity of feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then also thinking about your professional life, you taught for quite a while and you're currently teaching at University of Pennsylvania. University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Just from my own curiosity perspective, if you had to give a ratio of time teaching versus time practicing, do you have a, a feel for that? Well, for me, it's a little complicated because I... A lot of my practice is another form of teaching. So okay. I run many research projects that are related to my work. So I have collaborations with people around the world um, in China, Nicaragua, a different places where people are using my focus on possibility development to create programs themselves for, for children there. So I run trainings with, with my students and research assistants uh, working with teams from the U.S. And, and other countries. So all of that is teaching in a way. Okay. You know, I'm not doing direct counseling and I'm not teaching a formal class, but I'm training people in our model in helping uh, helping to design research approaches to studying effectiveness. Okay. So if I were to give a ratio, I would say 40% of my time is spent formally teaching in classes at Penn or Harvard previously. Uh, along with doing trainings, professional development trainings of one sort or another. Then some percent of my time is used mentoring students, doctoral and master's students. Um, I don't really work with undergrads at this point. And another 20% of my time is used writing. Hmm. And that's, that's, you know, writing about all this work. So, and I've written, I've written several books on these related topics and they take time, but they tend to come in bursts. Sure. I don't have... I don't, I would like to spend more time consistently writing as opposed to doing these um, marathon, you know, marathons where I'm right. intensely working for a few months and then going back to, you know, the day job. Yeah. Right. Man, like I keep saying this, but I have every, each sentence you make it through. I'm like, <laughs> let me go down 10 rabbit holes, but we'll try to just keep it together. Since we were talking just about kids, can you get into your possibility programs? What, sure. What is that? 
So possibility development really came out of this approach I was telling you about earlier, where I was working with young uh, people who were, were addicted to different substances, and I was more interested in creating preventive interventions. But that shifted for me as uh, the way I put it often is, instead of trying to stop bad things from happening, how do we promote the likelihood that good things will happen? Mm. So I created a program at Harvard while I was there called Inventing the Future. We called it Project IF, and the IF stood for Inventing the Future. So we worked, started out with middle school students and middle school or junior high school students, then high school students, really envisioning with them the kind of future they want, the kind of life they want. And that, we found, was much more exciting to a kid than coming in and talking about your problems. Mm -hmm. You know, really, what do you want to make happen in your life or see happen in your life? And then how are we going to get there? So that took me in two directions. One was mentoring relative to counseling. Counseling tends to be problem-oriented. Sure. Okay. Mentoring tends to be developmentally oriented. So I started focusing more on mentoring and then developed a particular form of mentoring called possibility mentoring, where we, we really break down the, the process for achieving goals into five steps. And I'll just briefly summarize those yeah. steps. The first one is exploring interests. So we spend a lot of time with with kids and adults now as well, exploring interests they have in their lives that they might want to pursue more deeply. Mm -hmm. So that second step, then we call prioritizing interests. If these are the various things you're interested in, what are the ones you're most strongly interested in that you'd like to do something with? So we train mentors and counselors in this second step of prioritizing, helping people get to priorities and then turning those priorities into goals. What, what's a short-term, you know, medium-term, long-term goal related to your priority interests? Um, the third step is taking action. No, is uh, planning to take action on, on the priorities. So what's, if you're going to become an athlete, for example, you want to be a high school baseball player or college baseball player, what do you need to do to get there? And so we'll, um, we'll spend time in this design phase or planning phase, really realistically prepping um, young people for taking action on their, their core goals. Then the fourth step is action, putting, putting the plan into action, which is where people typically fall short. Sure. If we ask the question, why don't we do the things we really want to do? We don't act on our plans consistently. We, we often in psychology talk about this as the thought action gap. You know, what gets in the way of what you think you want to do and what you actually do. And that's a long story as well. Sure. Then, then the fifth step is assessment. How am I doing with this plan of action? Am, am I taking action consistently? If I am, what's coming of it? You know, so when I mentioned um, earlier in my career wanting to be a writer, a fiction writer, I read lots of books on writing fiction. And where I fell short was sticking to a consistent plan, sticking to my plan consistently. Hmm. So I'd write for a while, you know, a few days, maybe a few weeks, but then I'd go on to something else. And when, we, you know, we do therapy with people, we find that's consistently a problem. People don't stick with even with things they really want to do. Hmm. Why is that? And so one of the answers is we kind of, we kind of, default toward convenience yep. in what's easier. The things we really want to do often take consistently applied hard work and that's where we fall short. Yeah. Is it a comfort zone thing too? I think so. Okay. I think it's a comfort zone and it is, you know, sometimes an escape from pressure. 
you know, I've done this long enough. It's getting kind of tedious now. I'm not sure how it's coming. Yeah. You know, there's an interesting book on, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has these popular books. And one is on, um, is a book called Outliers. Yeah. Which points out why some people really get to the, to where they want to go. Really high levels of performance and others don't. And the simple matter of the fact is they work consistently and harder. It's not that you have to do more work, but you have to do consistent work mm-hmm. to really get there. Any high-end skill requires consistent effort. Right, right. So for you as a comfort zone thing, but I'm talking to the the thought action gap, gap that you were talking mm-hmm. about, is it a comfort zone that brings them back away from doing what they're trying to pursue? Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you know, kind of a technical way that we talk about the comfort zone is if things are too far outside of your comfort zone, too challenging, you tend to get frustrated and then go back into the comfort zone. If things are below your your comfort zone, not challenging enough, you tend to get bored. Mm -hmm. So frustration at the high end, boredom at the low end. So how do you how do you work that key area between boredom and frustration? Hmm. You know, the right level of challenge. Yeah. And is that a thought maybe intuitively, is that a thought process with kids as part of your program, right? Keeping them in that zone where they're not bored and where they're not too far through that? Yeah, we try to we try to help them with that uh, yeah. in, in language that's appropriate for kids. Um, and you see vast variations. Some kids want to want to be challenged at, at the upper end of their comfort zone and even beyond it. They mm-hmm. want to play up in sports or they want to play a musical instrument at a really advanced level. Others want to be more comfortable. Sure. And we'll say that, that, you know, I'm not interested in being pushed that hard. Yeah. I'm interested in having a good time, hmm. enjoying life on the day-to-day basis, and just kind of work within a, a calm, more easily um, easily attainable level. And then others just don't work, don't get there at all, either because of anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, they, they just don't get to what it is they want to do, or they're distracted by friends, social media, what have you. And adults experience similar things. Yeah. And I'm thinking about... I don't know if this is a true thing, but I feel like I've heard of kids that are very intelligent, but never get challenged on a intellectual level through the whole high school process. For sure. And eventually, I don't know what the right term is, burnout or whatever else, but get frustrated with life. Yeah. And even though they have all this talent and all this intellectual ability, they were too bored the entire time and eventually almost gave up. I, I don't know if there's, I don't know if I'm phrasing that right, but something where they weren't challenged enough and it really negatively detrimented their life. Yeah. Later. I, I think you're, I think you're onto something. Definitely. I, two thoughts come to mind with that. One is that, yeah, some students or kids aren't challenged enough and school feels irrelevant yeah. to them and boring. So they check out. They might even be performing poorly, even though they're able to perform at a much higher level because it just feels irrelevant. Right. And then, um, Others don't experience the kind of challenge they want in school. You know, they're, you've got the mandated curriculum mm-hmm. and the kids might not find it interesting. But if they could choose to focus on special projects, they'll perform at a much higher level. Hmm. So you see different reasons why, why kids check out and different reasons why they don't feel challenged. They simply might not be interested in the material. Mm-hmm. It's not just that it's not hard enough or or challenging enough it might not be interesting enough sure yeah forrester research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing 
63% said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Huh, okay. Um, I was asking about the ratios, right, yeah. of your teaching versus the uh, practicing. Well, part of, part of the reason I was asking is a question I've been pondering in my head is, I've always been interested in people just like you, right? At a yeah. young age, I always was just focusing like, why did this person do this in this situation? Why did the group react this way versus if it was somebody else doing this, the group would have reacted in a different way or whatever it might be. Just always, always found myself studying that. And then eventually that's led what I believe. That's why I'm in sales. It just always having that huge interest in people and psychology and what makes people tick. And that's what this podcast is. Like it's, right. if you had to characterize my life, like that's what it is, that whole <laughs> study, but I've been thinking about the psychology field and thinking about even like, okay, put myself in the shoes of being a practicing psychologist or whatever. Mm -hmm. And a question I've been thinking about is how do you, like you perceive life through your lens and your, through your personality or whatever it might be. How do you as a psychologist remove your own, I mean, even a, a, top, a hot button word biases, but even be outside of biases, like how, how do you view somebody and help somebody who is on the complete opposite end of the personality spectrum from you. And maybe you don't fully understand them. Is it, is yeah. the knowledge that you learn enough to help you with that? Or how do you, how do you approach that or tackle that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, the first part of the answer is I actually teach a course on this at Penn in one of our programs. It's called advanced professional development for counselors. And it really focuses on biases, how we, how we all see the world through our own biases. And that, that's not a problem, it's a reality, but how do you deal with it, mm -hmm. you know, as a therapist or a counselor? Um, I, and one of the risks is that when you're too similar to people in your experience, you may think you know what they're going through because you impose that bias of shared experience on them. And sometimes that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, clients or patients appreciate that you've gone through things like they have, but you have to be careful not to think that they're experiencing things the same way, even though we come from similar backgrounds or are dealing with similar things. The other side of the coin is you can be, as you put it, so different in experience that you might feel you can't understand that person. The way I think we get there most effectively is recognizing that we don't know. Okay. We don't know everything about anyone, and we might not know enough about anyone even. So if you can go into the therapy experience as a therapist, really trying to understand another person's experience and recognizing that you don't know it, you have to get them to teach you what you're going through. Hmm. Then you can really learn. And I think where much of therapy is helpful is in a twofold way. Teaching the therapist who you are you know, and what you're experiencing, there's, there's healing in that, mm -hmm. especially when the therapist is validating that, you know, being interested in you, being interested in the complexities of your life story, that's very validating. So there's healing in teaching, and then there's healing in the self-understanding that comes from that. 
because I, you know, the one of the assumptions in therapeutic growth is that um, people change through self-understanding, and that by explaining your situation to someone else, having to talk it out loud, you learn more about yourself. Otherwise, what do you 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 either have internal dialogues? You know, you're talking to yourself about yourself, thinking about yourself, but those tend to be fragments. Mm -hmm. They tend not to go on for all that long in a consistent way or to get deeper even. Or you're having small talk with friends. Both of those are helpful, but neither of those tend to go as far or deep as a counseling or therapy session. So what I try to encourage is for people to approach, if, if they're thinking about going into therapy, don't think of it as you have a problem, mm -hmm. but think about it as life exploration. This is an opportunity to understand myself more deeply and maybe unlock, you know, for the work that I do, unlock the possibilities in my life that I really want to experience. Okay. And so I think part, partly I wonder the question is needs exploring from the fact that as a therapist or as a psychologist, it's not always you that is the biggest driving factor, but it's the setting, it's the environment. It's yeah. the, you're an attentive listener you don't need to have all the answers necessarily, maybe, for that person that you don't fully understand. Right. There are different schools of thought on that. One is you don't need to have any of the answers. Okay. But you need to be a facilitator to help the person come to their own answers. And that's called person-centered therapy or client-centered therapy. Okay. It was developed by a person named Carl Rogers back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And a lot of therapy works that way. There's a real belief that only the person is the expert of their experience. Mm -hmm. Your job is to help them get it out not that they know the answer but that they can know the answers sure right like not that there's even one right answer but that working on what you're struggling with is really the answer not not getting expert advice from a psychologist and that is a direct response to what's called psychoanalytic or psychodynamic theory or and therapy where there are real core interpretations of what things mean you know, when you're experiencing a certain thing, it's because you have had these experiences with your parents or, or other early life experiences. Mm -hmm. and there's, a, there's a deep theory related to all of it. I think both have their place, but they operate under very different assumptions. Okay. And you said that was in like the 30s or 40s at that train of thought? The person-centered therapy began. Psychoanalytic okay. therapy uh, and theory began around 1900 with Freud. Okay. And it's still dominant. Uh, and even when people don't practice it explicitly, they're still informed by it in many ways. Okay. I was going to ask, is there like a, and I should even maybe have you give me like a, a high arching picture of what the field of psychology looks like. So maybe can you do that, but then also get into like, what's the most commonly accepted practice today? And maybe even that's not the right yeah. way to look at it. But No, it, I think it's a, a common way to look at it anyway. So the field of psychology is, has many parts. The part that we're talking about primarily now is um, psychotherapy, counseling yep. and psychotherapy. Um, the other parts of psychology are kind of, you know, empirical psychology where you really study why things happen the way they do. You're not doing therapy. You're studying how, how things happen, how people become the way they are. Um, so there's research psychology and then there's applied psychology, which is usually um, practicing psychotherapy and studying psychotherapy. So let's talk about the, the psychotherapy field mm -hmm. for a moment first, since that's what we're touching on here. There are um, about four or five dominant um, strands of uh, ther uh, psychotherapy and counseling, and they are uh, 
psychodynamic therapy, which comes out of psychoanalytic therapy. That assumes that much of our, many of our problems come from unrecognized underlying issues. And that the goal there is to get to those underlying issues. And if we can get there and really understand what makes us struggle the way we do, we'll heal. Sure. The problem is you can get to those interpretations and have to work on them for a long time, even if they're accurate. Healing doesn't just follow from insight. So that's, that's sometimes referred to as insight-oriented therapy. Hmm. Then the person-centered approach is the one that suggests there is no right or wrong answer necessarily, that people have their own truths and the therapist's job is to help them find those truths and, and develop them and, and develop more functional lifestyles. The assumption there is that everybody can do their own work with help, that you don't need expert advice. You have to get to your own, you know, your own understandings. The third one and perhaps most dominant one in the field now is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. And it looks at the relationship between our thought processes and our behavior. So what behaviors are we engaged in? Let's say I used the example of alcoholism earlier because of my early addiction counseling work. So to really understand um, how a person with alcoholism is, is experiencing their life, we need to know what they actually do. When do you drink? What do you drink? How much do you drink? Who do you drink with? All those behaviors. What do you think of that? Are you okay with it? Do you want to stop? And then so if they're not okay with it, but they keep doing it, we want to help them understand why there's a, such a difference between what they want to do and what they actually do. So there's a way people talk about that sort of thinking process as distorted thinking, that you have distortions in the way you're thinking about the world. You're not thinking clearly. And that gets in the way of, of acting more functionally. But the point is, you're really looking at the relationship between the way people think and the way they behave. In that form of counseling, which has informed my possibility development model, you, you create plans for changing. Once, once you get a grasp on your thinking, you write it down, you talk about it, and you create plans for changing. Um, and then you look at the relationship between the, the thought change and the behavior change. So let me just give you a couple more, and then we yeah. can go into questions you might have about these. Yeah. Um, the other one is existential counseling okay. and therapy, which really looks at how you're experiencing your life. Not whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, but what are you experiencing and why? What do you want to experience? So that form of therapy often um, focuses on loss in some ways, how people experience losses in their lives and um, dread, you know, dread related to I'm not doing the things I want to do. Why is that? So the focus of the therapy is really getting deeply into the experience itself rather than trying to correct it, mm. but get into it. And the assumption there is that when people more authentically grasp the meaning in their lives, why they live the way they do, they will either change or come to terms with it and be okay. Okay. I would say those are, those are four of the big strands in the psychotherapy world. Okay. Um, and I, I do have some questions there eventually, but then also hierarching picture, there's psychotherapy, but there's other areas of psychology as well. Can you, right. can you get into those? Yeah. That's the study of human thought, okay. feeling, and behavior. That's essentially, psychology is, research psychology is trying to understand how thinking develops. That's called the field of cognitive psychology or cognitive development. 
how thinking develops, how feelings develop, that's the field of emotional development, um, and how behavior develops, that tends to be behavioral uh, psychology. And then you, you link, obviously those three things are linked. Mm -hmm. So psychologists look at, uh, try to study how thought, feeling, and behavior go together. And there are just all kinds of strands of research around that. Yeah. Um, so that's on, on the basic developmental level. Then there's the study of early childhood psychology, adolescent psychology, and adult psychology, and even the psychology of aging and dying. Sure. How do people approach that? So that's sometimes called lifespan development, you know, studies of how the, how the lifespan unfolds. Okay. Huh. Crazy. Well, I'll give you one more quick yeah, one. Yeah, go ahead. Another big area, of course, is um, the psychology of work. Okay. Why people function the way they do at work. How can you make workers more effective? How can you make workers happier? And the reason that's a big one is it has uh, implications for something else that's critical in the field called identity development. How do I experience myself as a person at work, in relationships, and just within my own um, self-understanding? Hmm. Okay. And that made me think of, I guess that was probably right along the time. Wasn't it a thing where like weekends weren't necessarily a thing in the workforce, right? Like sometime in the early 1900s, they introduced a, a Saturday and a Sunday off or something like that. That's right. And it's interesting that you bring that up now because there's a move in the reverse direction in many places huh. in other parts of the world and even here in the U.S. in certain industries. Yeah. So at some, po at some point, you know, during the industrial revolution, when we were really pushing for productivity, people worked seven days a week. And in some parts of the world, that still occurs. In China, people, uh, the Chinese people typically commonly work six days a week from nine to nine, you know, and then have Sundays off. And that's, again, due to very similar uh, motivations. The government wants the economy to develop. They want mm -hmm. the people to be productive. But it's associated with lots of mental health problems. People get burned out. And you can only go on that long for so long. Yeah. And that was the case in the U.S. around the, you know, in the 1800s. And then when the weekend was introduced, the thought process, there were a couple of thought processes there. But one was that people need to regenerate you know, to be productive. So it was still all about productivity. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really a humanitarian focus that people should enjoy their lives. That came later. Right. But it was really around productivity, how to help people regenerate, recharge. Now there's a push for a four-day work week and maybe 32 hours a week hmm. with the feeling that from an um, economic perspective, you don't need everybody working that much. Um, or some people working excessive hours. We really would benefit by everybody working productively, maybe for 32 hours a week, having more time off and feeling better about their work and thereby being more productive when they're at work. Hmm. That hasn't been studied carefully yet, but there's, there are especially corporations that depend on the bottom line have found that at times having people work less, but more creatively is better for their profits. Hmm. Okay. Did the uh, five-day, 40-hour workweek data show that that was an improvement? Do you know? Pretty clearly. I don't know the exact research on that, but definitely that, I mean, the, the interpretation of it is a healthier worker is going to be a more productive worker. Yeah. And you just can't be healthy if you're being overly worked. And then what do you do for your moments of relaxation? Drink or something else that's, you know, not necessarily healthy. And a, a, a cycle of um, a cycle of poor health and, and poor work performance tends to come out of that.
Mm-hmm. Okay. So on the, on the big picture psychology world, are, are, are we missing anything there? Are there other big areas that we haven't discussed? I'm just trying to frame my... Well, a couple, a, a couple. I mean, two of the big ones that we hear so much about today are trauma, the psychology of trauma. And when, if, there's, if one is abused or experiences violence, how does that affect the system, In, including our neurology, our, our nervous system? You know that there's a lot of there's a lot of psychological research now on how the brain actually functions neurologically. So okay. there's a whole field of neuropsychology, how brain wiring relates to feelings, thoughts, and behavior. So lots of breakthrough research happening there. Okay, neuropsychology. And the other one is, um, you know, especially in the COVID years now, we've seen such an escalation in youth suicide depression, anxiety, and suicide for young people and even, even young adults and some older people. So what, you know, what results in people being so depressed and, and hopeless that they become suicidal? And uh, we've seen increases in suicide rates that are somewhat unprecedented you know, during the COVID period and even after the COVID period. Okay. So there's a lot of focus on that right now. Okay. And is evolutionary psychology a thing and does that fit Big within time. one of the branches that we're talking about or is that kind of its own it's, it's another it's another form of it um and it ties into what we're talking about um psychologists wanting to understand how for example how the brain evolves over time you know what results in the evolution of of mental acuity in um emotional well-being so people have studied that in different contexts how people evolve or adapt to their environments differently. So evolutionary psychology in some ways is linked with adaptation. Okay. How people adapt to environments and, and evolve to function effectively or ineffectively in those environments. Right. Okay. So taking all these, and it's probably changed and shifted through the years, but do you have a core focus that you either find yourself always drawn towards or really focusing on? Yeah, mine is possibility development. So okay. this um, this project I talked about earlier, inventing the future, we changed that language to possibility development because it's a little easier to grasp. So I'm oriented toward that because I believe people are constantly drawn toward possibilities in their lives, mm -hmm. positively and negatively. They're inspired by things they want to do, and they're frustrated by things they can't do. So how do we how do we cope with the possibilities that confront us the possibility of losing our jobs the possibility of a better relationship you know all of these things i i frame in terms of possibilities and help people try to understand why they are situated as they are in relationship to the possibilities they most care about okay um and that's been your focus and is there something about you personally that draws you towards that definitely definitely it has to do with growing up in a uh, really a lower income working class family here in the UP and wanting to get ahead, hmm. you know, not wanting to struggle with poverty my whole life. Um, you know, my, I mentioned that my father was a powerful figure uh, as a union steward and very involved in labor issues. But he, he also went from one job to another and um, struggled with employment in part because he had five to six years of formal education. So I knew early on, I did not want to be undereducated. I wanted to have opportunities in my life that would come with a good education. And he encouraged that. Mm -hmm. And my mother did. And I had family members, a couple who preceded me in going to college. And um, so I was, I was always oriented toward 
what we can do, no matter what our circumstances are, what we can do. So when people get stuck, I get nervous. Hmm. It actually leaves me with a, a feeling of anxiety myself when, when people struggle because I've seen how hard it is to struggle close up in yeah. my family. Okay. So from that tough, and even tying that into, again, we were talking about how you perceive things at 12 years old. You were very in tune with what that yeah. was like. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that ties into this whole body of work. Has that been pretty, I guess a couple questions. One, is that really empowering and powerful to see that change or see your work improve other people's lives? But it, did it give you some power over your own past? I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I'll do the, I'll start with the second part first. Okay. Like power over my own past. I would put it this way. It's given me a way of making sense of my life, sure. of my past, present, and future, and how they all go together. So there's another form of psychology related to that called narrative psychology, yeah. that we tell ourselves stories about our lives. And that ultimately, the stories we tell about our lives turn into how we understand our lives. So, you know, having power over my past, I would say I've, I've created a narrative that makes sense to me. There's no part of my past I want to escape. Sure. I, I value it all, even the struggles and the things I did wrong, things that went wrong, because all of those things teach us something. You know, they make us who we are. So I try to hold on to that and, and transform it in ways that are helpful for me. With respect to helping other people, it has been tremendously gratifying to have that impact. You know, I've probably had, I've probably taught 20,000 Harvard and Penn students over the years and have have seen how I've had an impact on their lives, so the lives of my students. The lives of the students, of the children and families they counsel, I see that you know secondary impact I have. Mm -hmm. And in the own, my own psychotherapy that I've done over the years, it's been very gratifying to, to see the, the changes that are being made. So right now, the main organizer of my work is through something called the Global Possibility Network, where I bring these partners I work with across the world together. And we do conventions, we, we share ideas. The whole focus behind that is to strengthen what we call the opportunity structures to help young people thrive, to mm. grow and thrive. So it's, it's gratifying to see my work being taken on in different parts of the world now, as well as different parts of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Man, so many things there and I'll try to tack, work my way through this as well, but let me start. Are, are you familiar with Jordan Peterson, the psychologist? Yeah. Yeah. A bit. Okay. Have you paid attention to what he's got going on or read any of his stuff or not that much, honestly, but I know a lot of people have. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you if like, I really appreciate his message and what he's, what yeah. he talks about, Yeah. but I'm curious if that is because I'm not involved in that world. Whereas if I was formally trained in a psychology setting, would I look at what he's putting out there in a positive or negative light? And I don't know that that needs to be answered, but anyways. Well, let's go with that though. Tell me what it is that you like about it and I'll tell you what I think of that. Sure. Okay. A few things. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to even put a total finger on it, but it just has a lot about personal responsibility, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Take care of yourself and fix your own life before yep. you go out and try to fix the world. Yeah. Uh, also many things, but he also talks about how you were talking about writing is, and I haven't gone through this, but he talks about how he, he has a writing class where you write about your past, you write about your present, you write about what your future could look yeah. like, but yeah. you, a double edge approach with the future. One being, 
living your life the way that you know that you should yeah and doing the right things and what does that look like yeah but also the other one is you writing what do you does your life look like by fully going down that your vices and addictions yeah. and whatever else and it's very clear to you what those two distinct lives look like yeah um, so i haven't gone through that process but his i think just an entire message of personal responsibility yeah and personal understanding and stuff like that that i really appreciate no i yeah. I, I i agree with those sentiments i um I think they're critical. In fact, the bottom line is until a person can be responsible for their lives, they're not going to, they're not going to get where they want to go and they're not going to make the contributions to the community mm -hmm. that we hope people would make. Um, where I folk, I don't diff, I don't differ with, with Peterson in that way, but where I focus a little more is on what we can do when people don't take responsibility. Okay. The people who take responsibility for their lives, they're okay. Right. They're, they're going to be fine and, and they're going to make contributions for themselves and for their community. What about the people who really struggle to take responsibility for their lives? In my experience, it's not that they don't want to, but that they have a hard time doing it. So what can we do to help those people be more responsible, if you will? Or the word that I use now, some of the language I use for this is ownership. Sure. Taking ownership of your life, not letting someone else lead your life or not necessarily leading your life the way you think other people want you to, but taking personal ownership for it, which is a form of personal responsibility. Okay. So this podcast started with my own obsession for mule deer hunting and just wanting to know what makes other people the same way. Yeah. Uh, and I've been exploring that topic and asking people, you know, somebody comes in here, we're asking about fishing or whatever else it might be. Yeah. And I'm saying, yeah, have you thought about this? Like, what does this mean to you? Where is it taken yeah. to you? How does it fit in your big life picture? And there's some people that have gone down all of those rabbit holes and some are like, no, I just enjoy it. Yeah. And in my head, the question was to these people, are you either internal and do you process things or do you not? Jordan Peterson was talking about, and I don't know if this is true or how, and I, I need to even do a better job of this, but big five personality oh, yeah. types, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The type you are or where you fall in that spectrum and what are your extremes are will determine how you view your life. Um, and one of those was a creative, and I don't know if this is yeah. true or not, this is, but a creative type will view their life in like a narrative or a story telling yeah. setting. Um, a conscientious type will view their life in their achievements through their life. A agreeable person, I'm probably mixing this up. Agreeable person will view their life as though their relationships through time, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So that I'm delivering the message wrong, but maybe the theory correct. Uh, but that really, really changed my head or opinion of saying, maybe the question is not correct of, are you internal and have you processed this? Either you are, or you are not, but more so your personality would dictate how you view your life. And then realizing myself, maybe I am creative and maybe that is why I, cause I find myself looking at my life and from a narrative thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You had talked about viewing your life and everybody views their life through a narrative setting. Is that universal or is there a personality trait that is more prone to do that? Well, I think, you know, the big five personality traits that you just summarized, I, th I think you're, you explain them really well. I think okay. that's, that's right on target. Um, what I think we have to be careful of with that sort of thing is that people tend not to be either or. Sure. You know, we're probably all some blend of those five types. Right. But some of us are really more, much more dominant in one type than the others. Others of us are more of a blend. Um, I don't know where I think, where I see myself there, but I think consistent with what you said, primarily I see myself as the creative type. Yeah. I've always want to be, I always want to create things, whether it's, um, 
you know, the business I have with my brother, Greg, that you know about, that you've helped us with a little bit, that's about creating different housing opportunities. That's I see that as linked with psychology in some hmm. ways and uh, linked with creativity. But I, but I am conscientious as well. You know, I want to contribute to society and make sure other people are okay. You know, the agreeable side, I want to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes get in conflicts with them because I'm pretty opinionated. But at the end of the day, I want to connect with them. I don't want to separate. You know, even with our political uh, rhetoric these days where it's so hard to connect with people with different political opinions, I understand that. People feel deeply about what they believe. But ultimately, we need to be able to communicate across those differences. So I feel that sort of agreeable part of me as well. Sure. The point being, I think we're all some blend of these things. And one question, you know, we might have related to that is, are we dominated by our personalities or our personality types? Or can we change them? Can we modify them? And I believe the latter. I think I think personality holds sway. It's hard to break break loose of it completely and not that we necessarily want to but i do think we can modify not just our behavior but even our perceptions and our our feelings about things through practice if we really open ourselves up okay. to other people and other experiences okay um another thing that jordan talks about is that for and maybe it gets right into what you're talking about here but um good training for somebody that is on a far end of any of those spectrums is to practice being the opposite. If you're super agreeable, put yourself in situations and yeah. intentionally be disagreeable Yeah. or whatever it might be. Is that what you're talking about? The practices or, or is it more through knowledge or what is the, well, it could be through practice. It could be through uh, reflection. Okay. Um, but really opening yourself up to new, to new experiences. So I think what he's talking about is a very, concrete way of thinking about it and a good way of thinking about it in a certain sense what's the opposite of the way i am is it worth exploring trying things in that way Mm -hmm. so there's a famous um psychologist psychotherapist years ago named albert ellis Hmm. who had a theory called rational emotive theory which looked at how your our feelings affect the way we think and so uh, for this goes right to your your point about trying the opposite so he would tell people who would come into therapy sessions, if they were anxious and introverted, for example, he, he had his business in New York and he'd say, next week's, the homework for this week is you have to approach a stranger on the subway and ask them a question that makes you a little uncomfortable hmm. and see how that feels. See what happens when you do that. So he'd have people practice being the opposite of the way they are and then come and see what happens and come talk about it. And his assumption was the more we practice that, the less anxious we will feel about these strange situations over time. Yeah. Do you know if that proved to be true? There's research to support it, but here's the thing in psychology. There's research to support almost everything and research to counter everything. Sure. So most of the studies are mixed, and that's because people are complex. So it's very difficult to get to absolute hard and fast truths in psychology. We tend to see trends. Okay. Uh, and is that an element of just not having the ability to set up a perfect test? Like it's part that, okay. It's part that, but it's also partially that people are changing all the time. They're not the same on Monday as they are on Friday in all cases. So depending on where you test them and what mood they're in, you're going to get different responses that could, you could put that all in terms of testing though. If we had methods, you know, perfect methods to capture how people think and feel 
on a on a consistent basis over time you'd have better data okay but it's really hard to it's really hard to do that and very expensive to do it sure really hard to create that perfect test hey hard to create it it's all there's also a debate whether there's actually a real truth underlying any of this sure or whether we're always shifting okay um but thinking about the narrative thing like i said that i've even newfound appreciation for maybe that my personality type puts me towards thinking in a a narrative setting right um and you talked about you writing fiction and how that's always been powerful for you same thing big reader all my life i really enjoyed it yeah you talked about writing and i want to ask you about your writing but a recent book and i've talked about it all the time on here is are you familiar with the book a river runs through it oh yeah have you read it a long time a while ago okay yeah yeah that book recently just lit my brain on fire at the power of writing yeah and and he in the book goes and tells his life story yeah and it's poetry it's right. unbelievable the whole thing um but i was thinking I, i'm almost losing it for a sec but just thinking about that and thinking about your writing and drawing a connection there is that what you're exploring or are you thinking more of a technical writing that you're getting into right now um more of it is um more of it is technical in a certain sense i'm telling i'm writing about people's stories okay. you know the young people we work with so you know i have a, a book that's used pretty widely in uh, the field of adolescent psychology called understanding youth okay and it is a blend of explaining psychological theory to educators what educators should know about young people and and we use little scenarios from people's lives and some of those are made up because I don't want to really be talking about actual students I've worked with, mm. you know, factually in this book. So it's a blend of things I've learned from different people over time, including myself mm. and my family. So I, I, I present narratives in that book, and then we interpret them through different psychological theories. Okay. You know, why these things go the way they do. So most of my writing is along those lines now. Um, okay. Really helping people understand how... Um, how youth get to where they want to go and and what gets in the way and then using cases to flesh that out. Okay. And the cases you have might be a blend of stories. Might be a blend of stories. Yeah. Okay. But just to clarify something about this whole notion of narrative. Yeah. Some people think more directly or explicitly in terms of narrative, and that might be connected to personality type, as you mentioned. But I think all people have internal narratives whether they think about them or not we tell stories about why we're a constant failure Mm -hmm. why we why we succeed at some things why we're good at some things why we're bad but these are less facts than they are stories Mm. they're stories that become as as we say in psychology internalized and they become internal models that motivate us or get in the way and so part of the work of therapy is when, when these stories are dysfunctional breaking them down hmm. and looking at you know how, how you might change your story so that you see yourself differently and then feel act and and uh, think differently okay the so that's a good distinction there i'm glad you clarified that but i was thinking about this book again that i'm talking about the river runs through it yep. and saying how powerful it was for me it's just unbelievable to hear mm-hmm. this guy write about his life um and i was wondering is that because i was tying it and just thinking it is again, my personality type and living that narrative life where he's talking about his life in that way. Does that make me more attracted to that book versus somebody who is not as into the narrative? Sure. 
I'm not sure. I guess I just, yeah. I think so. I, I First of all, not a lot of people read books. Okay. So even the fact that you're in the minority of people who would read that, even a bestseller is read by a minority of people. Sure. Because it takes focus. It takes curiosity. You, you need to really be attracted to why things happen the way they do. So I, I do think there's something to your reading and appreciating that book that has that is connected with your personality or and your larger life interests. Hmm. But, you know, that's... The reason I wanted to be a fiction writer when I went to college is fiction is really about deep stories, deep yeah. stories of people's lives. And so, you know, the second best to being a fiction writer was to become a psychologist yeah. and study the deep stories of people's lives and even help reshape those stories of people's lives. Yeah. Fiction writing, is that on the radar at all? Yeah, I, I try my hand at it now and then. And I think if I could maybe do only one thing left in life, uh, one type of work, it, it might be that. Hmm. Um, but it's more of a stretch for me because I haven't practiced it over all these years the way I've practiced psychological work and psychological writing. But there's a, there's a strong connection between the two. Okay. Um, but I don't really want to be a crappy fiction writer. Sure. sure. You know, if I can't do it well, I don't want to spend that much time uh, taking it on. Yeah. So what I'm thinking about though, in the, on the fiction side, would you be a much different fiction writer today than you would have been 30 years ago? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But probably all, the common thread would have been a psychological orientation. Right. Psychological, spiritual, relational, you know, why relationships happen the way they do. <clears throat> so I think there'd be common threads, but hopefully more sophisticated views or maybe less sophisticated views. Right. I often use this analogy when talking about good work, if you think about musicians, why is it that so frequently um, musicians do their best work early in their careers? Yeah. You know, and many make no more than two or three albums. And if they do it, they tend not to be as acclaimed as their early ones. Is it because their early work sets a sort of standard or identity that consumers expect? Mm -hmm. Or is it that Sometimes a burst, our big bursts of creative energy come early, hmm. early in life. It kind of goes back to your asking about 10 and 12 year olds and, you know, the wisdom they have that other people don't see. Even in young musicians or young artists, I think we see that often their best work comes early, though certainly not always. Huh. Okay. So there's many areas there. I have talked a little bit about that, about a quote, and we can get into it later about people doing their best work in their thirties mm -hmm. and yeah. that's the age where they're visionary stuff like that. But, um, I don't know. I'm thinking about you and, and fiction writing and wondering again, are you a different writer today than back then? And I would say it must be true that obviously you've got however many years of experience on a technical level. So your, your knowledge of the field of psychology is way further, but for great fiction, do you write it as just a story, not even thinking about the psychological end of it and the psychological just I don't, I don't know what i'm getting at but the yeah i'm just wondering can you write great fiction while actively thinking about the psychological end of it or is it more that you write the story and it's embedded in there somehow through your subconscious or something like that it's a great question and uh, you know so many people in the field of psychology would say fiction writers are better psychologists than we are okay sure. they understand things more deeply which is why they can explain these compelling stories I don't buy that completely. I, I think that fiction writers capture elements of existence better than anybody can, in part because of their artistic ability, mm -hmm. not just their insights. So I think great fiction is an, you know, an integration of insight and art. 
And you can be an extremely insightful person, but not very artistic right. in your expression of it. So, but I think here's another um, connection that your question makes for me is that the more you learn, the more complex life becomes, sometimes the harder it is to grasp the simplicity of things. Sure. Because you start seeing other sides of issues and you can, you can go on and on thinking about things, all of which might be true. But can you really get to the point? Mm-hmm. You know, can you get to the point of what matters? Right, right. Yeah, the yeah. So that's what I'm just parceling all through my head. Is there that? Um, but I'm thinking too for you. You've seen however many years of you've heard all kinds of unbelievable stories. You've heard tragic. You've heard amazing. You've heard it yeah. all. Does that give you a world of things to pull from and, and and to contextualize every? certain situation i don't know yeah it, it does but it doesn't mean i do it accurately okay you know it, i'm I certainly drawn a wealth of experience now in, in interpreting why things happen and and um how i would engage in different situations even i'm informed by all that yet i make mistakes all the time mm-hmm. so knowledge is no knowledge and experience is no panacea you know they still they can still get you in trouble hmm. or or leave you with limitations and blind spots there's something that people talk about in the field of psychology called the recency effect, that we're sometimes most affected by the things that happened more recently, hmm. and we forget the past to a certain degree. That, and, and we, you know, historians talk about this frequently. Why do we overreact to certain situations? Because these situations are informed by rec- the recent course of events, and it's hard to hold on to the big picture of, you know, history over time, whether that's life history or national history or international history, we tend to be informed by the moment more than we're informed by history itself. Hmm. I'd say that's probably true for my reading. Like mm-hmm. typically at any given moment, I'm most impacted by the books that I've read most yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And then you might integrate it a little differently over time. You know, you go back and... So there's a... This isn't a field of psychology as much as it's... Uh, it's part of existential psychology, actually, which is to intentionally reflect on the past from the present moment so you can take it forward. The, feel, the, the belief there is that our, when we think of the future, the future is really led by the past, that we're going to be informed by what we've already done or experienced. So that, that, that's governing, that doesn't govern everything because there are situations out of our control. But what we've experienced in the past leads us into the future. So if we're not intentionally thinking about that and even critiquing it, we're likely to make the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's all, like I said, through the whole conversation, everything, everything you say spurs so many questions that I've probably forgotten half of the ones that have come (laughs) up, but, um, thinking about the possibility Mm -hmm. program that you have, um, is there like a higher arching theme behind that? And I guess I'm going to phrase that like, I frequently think about child development just through I was a child I have children myself I'm exposed to other kids relatives stuff like that um and wonder to myself how important is somebody or like my current viewpoint is somebody being engaged in that child's life in their school and asking them Mm -hmm. about their homework whatever else and positively reinforcing them and whatever else makes such a huge impact yeah and that the total removal of somebody or even even on the degree, like the far removal or total removal of somebody being actively engaged in that kid's life and really concerned and they see them makes a huge difference. But being removed then is 
detrimental in the other direction. Is that kind of, is that part of what it is too? Like letting yeah. them be seen and letting. Well, you're, t- you're touching on a, a number of things there that, that we focus on in possibility development. One is this core research finding that has really influenced the field a lot over the last 30 years. Um, that, and this is from the, a subfield of psychology called resilience, you know, how people become resilient. And one of the things we've learned is that an important influence of one adult, one caring adult outside of your family hmm. tends to predict positive outcomes. Wow. Just one caring adult. So that could be a teacher, could be a coach, could be someone else who's come into your life. But if they are consistently supportive, um, the, the research has shown very clearly that the outcomes for a person, for kids who have those types of people in their lives are much better huh. than those who don't. So that, that really spawned the whole mentoring movement. So Big Brothers, Big Sisters, which I'm, I've been on their advisory board for, for a couple of decades on their research council, where we look at studies of mentoring and how that would inform the practice of mentoring. So, but that field really came out of that finding that one important person outside your family is critical. Hmm. That doesn't mean your family's not critical. Your family is even the most critical influence. It's just not experienced in the same way because you take, we tend to take family for granted. Hmm. It's there day in and day out. It's like the everydayness of experience. But the novelty of a stranger or someone outside the family having a positive impact tends to really be motivating and and helpful to young people. So that's part of what is behind possibility development. How can we connect young people with caring adults or even caring peers who can help them along the way since that's been shown to be so important? Another, When you talk about higher arching um, themes though related to it, another one that some people hold on to, but I'm not quite as wedded to this as, as others are, is the whole notion of purpose having a life purpose. Hmm. And that's another line of research that shows people who feel they have a purpose in life tend to pursue it more passionately. You know, but what might that purpose be? Could be being a good person, contributing to my community, having a great artistic contribution, but find people often talk about finding purpose and that being critically important. The reason I differ from that a little is I don't think it's just one purpose or a singular purpose that's necessary but finding a purpose in living even, hmm. which is why I focus more on possibilities than purpose. Possibilities that people are interested in tend to motivate them to, to live well. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So through that possibility stuff, you said that it can give you some insight into your past, but in possibility work or your psychotherapy work, have you been able to reverse roles and just work on yourself internally? And has that changed you at all? For sure. For okay. sure. I think when you're in this work, you're, you're doing that a lot. Um, okay. you know, I, I feel like, uh, I have had the, you know, although I grew up in a lower income working class family, I had the privilege of having lots of supportive adults around. So there's, um, you know, sometimes, you know, obviously poverty is not a great thing. And I wouldn't say I lived in poverty. I classified as lower income background. But lots of, you know, supportive grandparents, uncles, aunts, parents, siblings. I was lucky to have all of this in my life. So, you know, I've looked at that a lot when, I'm, when I look at my own life. Um, how I've been influenced by these various people. And I think it, 
really motivates me to continue to try to have an influence on others' lives. I think there's nothing more important than positively influencing the people around us. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, this, all this is really resonating with me. One, because I think about this stuff all the time, but I was the 12 year old kid doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, and that to me, and again, this could, this, this fits into the, we talk about the narrative that somebody tells themselves in my head, this is my narrative that yeah. I've always been interested in people. And that has led me down this road of sales and working with people because that's an avenue there where I really get to sit down and ask somebody, Hey, what's important to you and what makes you tick or whatever. That's this podcast. That's everything. Yeah. I really like to th- always think about how much of this is rooted in truth and how much of it is you giving yourself a false narrative. I don't think that the narrative I just said is false. Maybe that's because I'm really attached to it. But anyways, I don't know. For some reason, I always like to try to suss out how much of what I'm telling myself is me skewing the information and how much of it is actual reality. Is there is there a field of psychology there or is that something you think about? Of, of yeah. How, yeah, I guess. Can you that dive re- into that? Yeah, that really goes into the, the field of existential psychology in a certain way. Is this an authentic narrative you're telling yourself? And by authentic, I mean one that you really believe in yeah or are you trying to convince yourself of something sure so a false narrative from that perspective would be one that you don't deeply believe in you're trying to convince yourself that this is the way you are Hmm. um and a more authentic one would be one that you really do believe in right it doesn't mean that it has to be factually true Hmm. if you believe in that narrative that narrative is probably going to reshape you Mm -hmm. and you'll start behaving that way and make it you know, thinking, feeling, and behaving that way and make it factually true yeah. over time. But most most people's narratives aren't that clean. Okay. They tend to be more ambiguous um, or ambivalent, that there are these good things about me, bad things about me. There's this and that. And we have a hard time organizing it. So the purpose of narrative therapy is to try to bring some organization or or crystallization to the various things we feel about ourselves and the ver- so the various stories we we tell ourselves how can we make them more coherent and part of that is there's a really interesting deep psychological book called narrative truth versus historical truth hmm. and the argument there is that the narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves are more important than the facts of our lives hmm. that you could tell yourself a factual history story but that would not be as important as the narratives uh, that the narrative you create about that history, which would leave out many of the facts and exaggerate many others. And the reason I agree with that point is we act on how we understand ourselves. Yeah. Not we don't we tend not to act so much on what actually happened, but on how we understand ourselves. Okay. Though that's debatable. Sure. Um so thinking about earlier, you were talking about how you can shift your personality. Mm-hmm. Is that part of it too? Like really evaluating your narrative and how much of this is yeah. truth and not truth. And you will act upon the narrative that you say. Yeah. If you shift that narrative now, you could potentially change who you are. Essentially. Yeah. yeah it's, well, it's an interesting thing. Um, you know, personality is a concept that is very familiar to most people. So it's used widely. I tend not to think so much in terms of personality sure but more in terms of um the different ways we are and what makes us tick 
I think personality is a shorthand for capturing that. Identity is another way of capturing it, the, the concept of identity, hmm. how I understand myself. Basically, identity is defined as self-understanding. And do I understand myself primarily in terms of my personality characteristics or more in terms of what I do, how I respond to things, which also might be connected to personality, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Okay. Yeah. The thinking about the writing as well, the fiction writing, right? We were talking about, would you do it now? And you said that you don't know if you'd want to do it from a inadequate perspective. Right. Is there value and benefit in doing it because that you're interested in it and, and just not release it if it's not sure. There's there's definitely value in it, but it comes down to um, how we want to use our time. Sure. You know, time is finite. So writing fiction takes a lot of time. Do I want to use my time doing that? Or would I rather use my time doing the other kind of writing I'm doing and, and work I'm doing? Mm-hmm. So right now, I guess I'm, I go back to this notion of prioritization. You can't do everything. So what are you going to prioritize? And I've gone so far down the road with some of my other writing projects. I want to see those get over the finish line. Um, so fiction writing becomes a lower priority, even though I would say a passion, not as much, not a, as much as some of the other work I'm doing that I really want to move forward. Sure. Okay. Um, and thinking about the future of psychology, you're pretty connected with that in teaching, right? Right. Is, is it shifting? Is it moving in a general trend? Is there a, uh, yeah, what's that whole world look like? Yeah, it's, it's almost always shifting. Here's some of the, it is always shifting. I'll, I'll give you some of, the, um, some of the big trends over the last 30, 40 years. One is this notion of positive psychology which is possibility development is linked to that a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's not quite the same thing. Positive psychology is the focus on what makes us healthy and functional versus what makes us unhealthy and dysfunctional. So most of the field of, of psychology has been organized around people's problems. How do we help people become less pathological as opposed to focusing more on health. So that was one motion, mo- moving toward positive psychology and really orienting on things like motivation, what motivates people to succeed, um, happiness, life satisfaction. I- interestingly, uh, for a long time, the field of psychology focused on the opposite, hmm. what makes us unhappy, because that's painful. And, we want, and psychologists were in the business of helping people with their pain. But so there's that trend toward toward more positive psychology, if you will. Another trend, a big trend in the field is, as I touched on earlier, the whole notion of neuropsychology, how brain development physiologically is linked with how we think, feel and behave. And there are just huge breakthroughs occurring in that area and there will continue to be. Hmm. Um, So that's. Sometimes that's referred to as the connection between mind and brain, that the brain is the physiological organism we have in our skull. The mind is what we do with that. Mm -hmm. But the brain is wired in particular. So here's an interesting thing. The brain is wired in a particular way that influences the mind, but the mind also reshapes the wiring of the brain Hmm. because what we think about leads the brain to physiologically be rewired. So there's, and most of... The, the most critical rewiring work happens in the adolescent years, you know, the early to late adolescent years where the brain really takes shape often in response to what, what kids are experiencing in their day-to-day lives. The deeper we experience things, 
the more deeply our brain gets wired in that direction. Sure. Okay. So that's one. Neuropsychology, neuroscience is one area. Another one is the impact of technology and social media on psychology. And that's just that's just a huge area. Yeah. And it's not going to go away anytime soon. There's you know, there's so much power in technology and social media and so much money to be made on it that that's going to affect the way kids think and behave for a long time. Hmm. Is there is there even a when you said that, I assumed it was a like a defense research. Like we want to stop. No, no. But it's it's, it's actually uh, I, maybe even both. Well, right. both. Yeah, really trying to understand how technology and social media influences people. Yeah. But then on the applied side, how we should manage technology and social media to have more productive outcomes for our people. Right. So, you know, why does the Chinese government come down on social media? Uh, it's, not it's not just to keep people from learning about the government it's concerned that that people are exposed to so much bad stuff mm -hmm. in uh in social media and through technology that they they put limits on it yeah but in that too is there and i'm framing it as a detrimental thing is there a detrimental well that's not the right way to word it either way is there a, yeah is there a like does facebook and sony and playstation have psychologists that will help to make these games more addictive Definitely. Okay. <laughs> Definitely. So there are psychologists doing, you know, what, what reinforces people to play these games, these video games, and what reinforces people to gamble? So there's this concept called intermittent reinforcement, that if you don't get reinforced right away, but every now and then you get, you get reinforcement for a success or something you've done, you're more likely to keep working toward that thing. Hmm. So if, if, you, if you reinforce or reward people constantly... It gets boring. It takes the challenge away. Hmm. But when you intermittently reward people, it tends to have the impact of them wanting to do more of that. Yeah. So in, you could even think about that in terms of social media. There are intermittent rewards people get, um, likes and you know whatnot in and uh, on Facebook. So there are I I I think of uh, technology and social media in terms of power. Sure. That it's it's immensely powerful for good bad and otherwise okay huh other areas as well as far as uh trends are those the big ones or is there well other? the others you, you touched on evolutionary psychology earlier and certainly with climate change um people are people are responding differently uh, people are moving literally moving to different parts of the country before we know it the copper country is going to be more populated than it is yeah, now right. because of the climate so um, climate has a huge impact on the on mood, for example. So if people are really uncomfortable because it's too hot consistently, there are higher levels of depression, higher you know higher levels of hopelessness. When when conditions are more optimal, people tend to feel better. So there's there's going to be progressively more research looking at the way we adapt to changes in the climate and how we can more functionally adapt. Okay. Um, and then another thought I've had, okay, so this podcast is called the obsessed podcast. And I thought a long time, talked with my wife, talked to a few people about that word because there's a negative connotation. Sure. To it. Um, I'm celebrating the positive side of it while also understanding that me being obsessed with mule deer hunting or whatever yeah. it might be yeah. has a negative component to it. it might, yeah. I maybe should be more engaged in my daughter's birthday party versus thinking about yeah. what I'm, the trip I'm going on next week. Right. 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 Um, 
also acknowledging and understanding that with that, there's a lot of benefits. I think it makes me a better uh, real estate agent or whatever. Mm-hmm. I learn mm-hmm. quicker because of it. Yeah. But also I've said this before, if I was into a substance, I know that be, with those traits, I would be into it heavily. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, is there, does that tie into your addiction work? And, and did you find light at the end of the tunnel with somebody that was addicted and moved beyond that? Or even somebody who's not and you can look at them and say, wait a minute, you should be careful because it's a slippery sure, slope. Sure, De- definitely. No, you're right on to, to something there. Um, the reason that addiction work has primarily promoted abstinence is it's really difficult to change uh, behavior from abusive, where you're, su- you're abusing a substance like alcohol or other drugs or cigarettes, for example, and then learning to drink or smoke moderately. It's doable. Mm-hmm. There, there's there's good research on that. People can modify their behavior. But it's much harder than stopping completely. Once you stop completely and kind of rewire yourself for a different lifestyle, it's easier to stay on that train. So the 12-step programs like AA for alcoholism, the reason they're so popular is abstinence tends to work. Not Again, not for everybody, and this is a debated field as well. But learning moderation is much harder Mm -hmm. than learning um, to be abstinent, to not do something. And certainly personality type factors into that. And you're touching on obsessiveness, I think is right on the money with respect to that. If you're more of the obsessive type, you are more likely to struggle with moderation. You know, you want things intensely, you know, and you focus on that thing intensely. So... I think you're on target there. I want to just back up for a second, though. There's there's one other area of, of change in the field of psychology that I don't want to forget. Yeah. And that is the whole focus on gender identity, sexual and gender identity. So you have the, the LGBTQ movement, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer movement, where um, people are focused on being whatever you are and embracing that, whereas... We forget how recent that is. You know, not long ago, that was all thought of as pathological. And there are still debates in the field on, you know, what's normative, what's okay, what crosses the line. But certainly this is often called identity politics. But identity politics are very, very important in the field of psychology now because people come in with conflicts around this stuff. You know, we have... uh, my son, my older son plays, has played on a baseball team and coaches that team where there's a, now a boy on that team who was a girl and uh, had cert, his parents ultimately supported the surgery while that child was fairly young. That makes people very nervous because it's so out of the norm of what we've experienced historically. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to wrap our heads around what's okay with respect to that stuff. Is it okay to have surgery to change your your biological um, body um, if you feel like that isn't consistent with how you see yourself. So I'm not endorsing one thing or another. I'm suggesting, though, that that's a huge area of psychology that's going to continue to grow. Sure, sure. The So, yeah, I appreciate you laying out those areas of growth. Just curious what the future looks like, I guess, because it seems like things are always moving in a different trajectory. Or if somebody was interested in those worlds... Um, where should they focus or is there a, a growing opportunity in those those spaces? There are lots of growing opportunities, honestly. Um, 
you know, environmental psychology is, is developing new strands now. People can work in that area, helping people cope with environmental change and um, deal with their moods in terms of the environment. Um, the biggest area, the biggest boom is in the area of neuropsychology. There's a lot of, um, even psychotherapists are starting to look at that mm-hmm. and, and talk with people about the relationship between their brain development, how they're affecting their brain development through their behavior even. Hmm. And um, so there's going to be cutting edge work in that area. But I think the opportunities are are where people want, individuals want to take it. Whatever one is interested in, there's a type of psychology connected with that. Hmm. So in your line of work as uh, in, you know, the real estate field, thinking psychologically with people about that is a huge opportunity. What, what kind of living arrangement or living environment do you really value? Yeah. Is it worth spending more on housing because you really value that? Or would you rather distribute your resources differently? So, you know, there are opportunities across career development is a big one now because of the changing nature of, of work. Yeah. You know, uh, we see it in the, what, what we're calling the great resignation in some ways, but people are also calling it the great reorganization and the great one thing or another, but people are changing jobs because during COVID they experienced work differently in many cases. And as a result, reflected on their lives and thought about how they want to spend their time. Mm -hmm. Do I want to be sitting in front of this computer all the time? You know, do I want to be uh, focused in this field all the time or am I willing to try something else? And I think one of the, one of the benefits of COVID is it, it forced us to do things differently. Yeah. And by being forced to do things differently, we reflected on our lives in particular ways. Yeah. And I see that firsthand in real estate. There's mm-hmm. so many people that are coming to this area uh, for that reason. And all, almost exclusively, COVID had an impact on that. Yeah. yeah. It's something they've been thinking about or whatever else to the extreme of it. It's something they've been thinking about. They've got family here. This was just the thing that made it happen yeah. to the other end of I really reevaluated my life. I went on Google and said, where do I want to live? And right. somehow they ended up here. Right, um, right. But for sure, real estate and sales has been my vehicle of, for better or for worse, and whether people know it or not, of fulfilling my uh, excitement and just getting to know people and what makes yeah. them tick and, and is this important to you in that whole regard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your, your work falls within the realm of... Uh, what has typically been called industrial psychology, and that was focused, you know, in the early days on how um, how industries, factories, could be organized to help people be more productive. But now it's looked at much more broadly. Hmm. What allows people to feel like they're a good fit in different uh, arenas of work, and what allows them to perform best and get more satisfaction out of their work? So that's a another area where hmm. there's just so much opportunity in the years ahead right right um so thinking any anything else on the on the uh because i i cut you off short you went back to one but anything else on the growth side of things or other areas that are expanding no i i think i think we hit the big ones honestly uh so then thinking about how i talked about the the podcast name the obsession addiction tying all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff together in your addiction work there's a part of me that really resonates and understands and that resonates with and understands an addict yeah because i said because mm-hmm. of my personality i know that i could yeah. do that yeah did you work on like addiction prevention 
as well as with and somebody who was addicted and we don't have to go into this if it's tough to talk about or not tough, but you're like not able to talk about because of your personal experience, not personal experience, professional experience. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I'm curious if like there's a common thread of somebody who was an addict gets beyond that and then is able to channel that in a really positive way. Yeah. There's, there's just so many uh, layers to that question, but one, one of the ways that unfolds is that when addicts go into a form of treatment and start to change, they start to think differently and they see their lives in different ways. So when a person is in the midst of addiction, especially heavy addiction, there are just chronic cycles of experience and failure that just get reinforced. Um, Most people who are addicted to something or another want to modify that or stop at some point. Then it, then it crosses a threshold where some people say, no, this is just who I am now. Hmm. I, I, I drink, I do drugs. I'm okay with that. That's the way it's going to be. That's rare though. That's more the exception than the rule. When they come, when they can pause, one of the benefits of abstinence is it forces a radical change in behavior, which then opens the door for different ways of thinking and feeling. And once, once a recovering addict starts to think and feel differently, it can, it can become inspirational, yeah. almost like an adrenaline rush, another form of addiction, even if you sure. will, addicted to feeling good. Right. You know, and then that's why you see so many people who are in recovery want to help others because they've experienced almost being, it's almost like a religious conversion, yeah. being reborn. You know, my life just holds so many new opportunities now that I'm not held captive by the addiction I've had. Right. So the, okay. That, yeah, I could see that again, just going through that and realizing how powerful it was. And you can see another yeah. person who is addicted and understand the hole that they're in yeah. and let yeah. me help you get out of that. I'll, I'll touch on the other part of your question though. Can you, can we prevent addiction? Right. So, you know, an important part of my career got launched by a big prevention grant I helped get when I was at Harvard. I was then a, in the, last year of my doctoral program, I think, or second to the last year. And we got a $1.6 million grant from the government to do addiction prevention. Hmm. It was, uh, prevention was a real big focus then. And what I learned from that work is that the most powerful form of prediction is meaningful engagement in constructive activity. So, so for example, a lot of kids who are really starting to use alcohol heavily you know, early on sometimes mm-hmm. in, in middle school and junior high school, and certainly through the high school years, often, this isn't the case always, but often they don't have other things they're actively engaged in. Um, they don't feel a sense of hopefulness that, that things can go well. So the alcohol or drugs fills a void. For others, it's a very different trajectory. They start with partying. They're not doing it to escape problems. They're, they're doing it because their friends are, and it seems like fun, and they get involved in it, and then it takes on a life of its own. Hmm. But on average, I think the most powerful thing we can do to help young people reduce the likelihood of becoming addicted to a, a substance or something else is constructive engagement, feeling good about what they're doing in other arenas. When because that takes on a life of its own as well. These are these are all cycles. Mm-hmm. If you're you know a musician or an athlete or a good student and are experiencing consistent success and enjoying it, that takes on a life of its own, and it reduces the likelihood that you're going to escape from that sort of thing through through an addiction. Yeah, with the possibility 
side of things. And then we were talking to the, uh, having that one adult outside be really engaged that, uh, I'm answering my question myself, but obviously that makes a huge difference, right? Huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. On on a development level, but also on a a addiction or, or, or a substance abuse trajectory level. Both. Okay. Both because there's a, there's what we would call an inverse correlation between healthy development and addiction. Okay. So the more develop, the more interested uh, people are in doing something constructive that they really care about, the less likely they are to engage in uh, addictive behavior um, and have that take over their lives. That's not a hundred percent true, but these are these are all kind of correlations mm-hmm. or or likelihoods. There's you know unfortunately nothing we can do that absolutely prevents negative things from happening, including addiction. So what we're always trying to do is reduce the likelihood that people engage in these destructive behaviors. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate all this. <laughs> Just let me pick your brain and ask you about all the yeah, your trajectory, but also the different just questions I've been pondering as yeah. well. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to share it with you. I want to share one last thing that we didn't touch on, but has been was so important to my life and is still, but in a very different form. And it's linked with the notion of obsession a little huh. in that I was religiously obsessive as a teenager. I was um, very involved in my church and took it on deeply which resulted in my not drinking or using drugs in my teenage years or, or early, um, early adult years. And that transformed for me in a certain way. I, I didn't stay connected to the church I grew up in and didn't really remain even an active Christian. But I, those principles got transformed into other ways of being that are very related to it. Hmm. And I would say that's, that's another preventive mechanism, that if people have deep faith in something and have faith communities they're involved in that certainly is a preventive factor for for engaging in you know substance use and other forms of of addiction again it's not a panacea it doesn't guarantee you won't do it but religious or spiritual faith tends to be a a powerful preventive mechanism for negative things in life hmm. from the faith itself as well as the community aspect both right? The yeah, community both. aspect more likely to have that outsider adult that's... Yeah, the community as re- religious communities do provide that. They tend to provide natural mentoring okay. for young people. So there's that value. But faith is, is, an, is a psychological phenomenon. Having faith in God or having faith in a higher power is a belief. It, it's not necessarily a fact. It's this is what I believe to be most important in life. And if this is most important, that's what I'm going to follow. Sure. And yet we fall off, you know, we don't necessarily follow the tenets of our faith, which is where the notion of sin comes in. Right. Then you feel bad about not being a good Christian or Muslim or whatever it is that you are. Yeah. Huh. Unreal. All of it, Mike. Really appreciate it. Thanks for hopping on. Happy to talk with you, Logan. You made me think of many new things as well. (laughs) Hey guys, thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have, and you feel so inclined Share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you.